So let's turn once again to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And I was uh, just a little bit of trivia because this is a two-parter, this message, but I'm going to wrap up today. So um, <clears throat> I, found this, I found this amusing. You may not, but, uh, and maybe you didn't last year, but I was looking back to see which Psalms have I preached on, because this is our third summer in the Psalms. So I looked back to see what Psalms have we preached on, and I, I saw last summer the same title five times, only part one, part two, part three, part four, part five, and I'm like, what in the world? And it was all from Psalm 3, which is eight verses long. So I didn't read the sermons, but I have no idea how I got five sermons out of eight verses, but I did. So uh, I just found that amusing. Um, but Psalm 103 has 21 verses, and we're going to wrap it up in two sermons, uh, this being the second part. Last week, if you remember, the first five verses call us to remember the benefits of believing God, the benefits of those who are God's people. Verses 6 through 21 describe the character of God. And in a world where misrepresentations of God and who he is and distortions of who God is swirl around, Psalm 103 speaks to us about who God is, what he's really like. Before we get into it, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for our uh, opportunity to be together as God's people. Lord, to take communion together as those who belong to Christ, those who are in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we can fellowship together. And Lord, even as we go through this word, let your Holy Spirit speak to us loudly and wonderfully about who you are. Lord, remove any distortions that may be in our hearts, any misrepresentations that might be going on, even in how we think about you, God. And draw us near to you. We have that privilege through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. How would you answer, and don't answer out loud, but how would you answer if I were to ask you, what is the first sin recorded in history? What is the first sin that's recorded in Genesis? I said not out loud, but somebody said it, so say it louder, because I want to hear. Ah. Yeah. Okay, disobedience is the first sin that comes to mind, isn't it? Because God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam and Eve disobeyed that clear command. So, yes and no, that is the first sin that man committed, but the first sin committed in the garden was slander, and it was committed by the devil. The serpent slandered God's character to Eve. When Eve told the serpent that God had commanded them not to eat of the fruit or they would die, the serpent responded, you surely won't die. Direct contradiction of what God had said. And logically, by implication, God lied to you. 
What God said to you is not true. You will not die if you eat of that fruit. In fact, he says, he goes on, he says, God knows on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will know good and evil and you will be like God. See, what's he saying is God lied to you because God is jealous of what you will become if you eat of that fruit. You'll become like him. You'll become like God. God is jealous. God is holding you back from all that you are meant to be. You see, the tree, the serpent said, is good. It's God who isn't. Slander, misrepresentation of who God is and his character, right there in the very beginning. Jesus said, the devil is a liar, has been from the beginning, and he is the father of lies. Lying is the devil's native tongue, and he speaks it fluently. And his first lie and his constant lie through history has been to slander God's character, who God is. Satan slanders God's character in order that we might think God is something different than who he is, and so that we would feel we can't trust God, or we don't like God. The Bible is God's revelation of who he is. In this word is the revelation of who men are, what, what mankind is, what we're all about, about it's a revelation of what sin is, it's the revelation of redemption through Jesus Christ, and it's God's revelation to us of who he is. We would never come to the right conclusions about who God is on our own, but through the Bible, we're able to come to the right, we're able to understand who God is. Now, the Bible is not exhaustive about who God is. We will literally be learning new things about God and who he is for all of eternity. But it's accurate. It's 100% accurate in how it reveals God to us. So we can trust the word of God. Psalm 103 tells us so much about God's character and why we can trust him with our lives. So we're just gonna kind of walk through this psalm together and we're gonna begin in verse six, where it says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. I think one of the biggest questions people often ask, and it's a fair question, is why does a good God allow bad things to happen? You've heard that said, maybe you've wondered that. Why does a good God allow bad things to happen? If God is good, why are there wars? Why was there slavery? Why is there corruption? Why is there abuse? Why is it that people who cheat and lie and, 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 and take bribes prosper in life and those that, that are, avoid those things often struggle in life? Why, if God is good, why is there suffering? Why do good people, why do little children sometimes suffer? The devil loves to use these questions to cause us to form a view of God as either powerless 
or uncaring or evil. In Amos chapter 5, God speaks through his prophet and he says, and, this, and the book is all about God's hatred of all the unjust things going on in the land, the oppression, the injustice, the lying, the bribes. And through his prophet, God promises there is coming a day. There is coming a day. It's called the day of the Lord. And he says, when the day of the Lord comes, then justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That day is going to come with justice and righteousness rolling down. And all those who pervert justice, all those who have been oppressed by justice will receive justice. God will settle all scores and he will give justice. Now the problem with that is none of us will be able to stand on that day. None of us are just. None of us are righteous. The very person who's questioning God's character, saying, where's justice, as if their heart had more justice in it than God's, will not be able to stand on that day. None are righteous. No, not one. And when God's brilliant light of justice and righteousness pierce through each of us individually on judgment day, on the day of the Lord, it will shine through us and we will see how unjust we are, how corrupt we are, how deceitful we are, how unrighteous we are. And none of us, no human being apart from Christ, will be able to stand on that day in their righteousness. Which is why the good news that Paul writes about is he says, on that day I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, but having the righteousness that comes through Christ by faith, the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness that is given to me by God because I believed. So we, when we believe in Christ, we are put into the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness covers us. Isn't that good news? But when we stand before God and judgment day, when he looks at us, he's not going to see that you did this and you did that and you did the next thing. He is going to see the brilliant righteousness of Jesus Christ shining back at him and he's going to say, I am well pleased. And what did you do to do that? You gave money to the poor, you came to church, you tithed, you did this, you did that. No, you believed. That's our part. You believed in Christ, he put you into Christ, and we are righteous on that day. We have one plea on that day, hallelujah. But that plea is loud enough, it is Jesus Christ. So when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive his righteousness. So when righteousness and justice roll down like water, we're rolling with it. And we're amening with it. Thank you, Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. He goes on in verse 7, the psalmist. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Listen to verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He will not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The psalmist is quoting from Exodus when God passed by Moses and allowed him to see his goodness. And he spoke over him basically this this word, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he speaks about how he keeps his steadfast love for, genera- for a thousand generations. But his anger against sin for only a few generations. And that's a whole other subject, which I thought about getting into, but we're not going to get into that. But the big truth that we see over and over again is that the Lord is merciful and gracious. That he abounds in steadfast love. That's like who his heart is. That's who God is. Love, mercy, grace, compassion flow naturally and abundantly from the heart of God. You know what doesn't flow naturally and abundantly is anger. Anger. Love is always in God's heart. Anger isn't. Anger is a necessary attribute of God's love because it's a part, it's a necessary response to evil. But it's a response to sin. See, God's heart is always residing in love. It's naturally always residing and, and, and just remaining in love. God is love. That's the natural state of God's heart. Anger is not the natural state of God's heart. Anger only comes when God's Love is provoked by evil, and then there's anger. But it's short, and his love is forever. So, there are two extremes. When Christians or non-Christians try to paint God as never angry at anything. He just kind of like, just loves, just sentimental love. You know, sloppy, agape, and all that. You know, just, hey, whatever, you're sending it up. It's okay, it doesn't matter. God's, God's cool with that and everything. We are misrepresenting God when we do that. God does get angry. And there is, you, you'd rather face anything in the universe than God's anger. Trust me, I'm sure, because God's word says that. God does get angry. So when we paint him as if he doesn't get angry, we're misrepresenting him. But on the other hand, Have you ever met Christians who paint God like he's always angry? You know, their billboards are angry. Turn or burn, you know, God is out to get you. He will smite your cheek and break your teeth and bust your head open. Have a great day, you know. God is angry. And they they view holiness as God's anger and God's angry at you. And they're misrepresenting God too. As if God's anger is a defining trait of God. No, God is love. He gets angry, but he is love. His love lasts forever. His anger doesn't. Isn't that good news about who God is? Oh, that we would know the love of God. We sang it just earlier, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Then the psalmist attempts to measure God's love and his forgiveness and his compassion. Read with me verses 11 through 14. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. How high are the heavens above the earth? What's the measurement on that? How far is east from the west? You ever measure that? The problem is you can't because it's infinite. Or when it comes to the heavens, as infinite as we could possibly ever know. The, the heavens are infinite above the earth. Now, if he said as high as the moon is above the earth or as high as the sun is above the earth, well, then we'd have 93 million miles or whatever the moon is. But he doesn't say that. He says as high as the heavens. The heavens continue on. Speaking of the, the galaxies and the the height of the universe. The east is immeasurably far from the west because they are opposite directions and they can go in those opposite directions forever. And here's why this is something we need to meditate on and our hearts need to get a hold of. I think a lot of believers, a lot of Christians, don't have a problem believing that God loves and that God forgives. You know where the challenge for us comes? is when we, is, does he love and forgive me? Because we can feel as though, yeah, I understand he's loving. I understand he's forgiving, but I know how unlovable I can be. I know how much I sin. I'm aware of it, and I've stretched his patience. And we can feel we could, I, I mean, I've said to people, God loves you. God loves you. You need to know that. But in my own heart, I've struggled with, does God love me? God forgives you, but does God forgive me? Because it's very personal when it comes to us. And we can feel like, yeah, he loves and yeah, he forgives. But I feel like I'm exhausting his supply. I've pushed it too far. And that's why this verse is so, so good for us. Because it's telling us you're never going to exhaust God's supply of love. You are never going to exhaust his ability to forgive. God gives us a measurement of love and forgiveness and compassion that is infinite. Infinite. In Christ, we live in his love. We live in his love. And the only way you're going to get out of that love is if you somehow cross the border from this universe to something, whatever is beyond that. Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, God has separated us from our sin, so removing our sin from us that we're heading eastward. Our sin is heading westward. And our identity and how God sees us is completely separated from our sin. I will remember your sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, through Jesus Christ, he has removed our sins. 
That's how much God loves. That's how much God forgives. But it's interesting to me that when he comes to compassion, when he comes to God's compassion, rather than use an infinite measurement, he uses an intimate measurement. As a father. God's compassion is also infinite, but compassion, compassion is an intimate emotion. Because compassion means that I empathize. I feel where you are. Compassion is when you cry tears. That person feels those tears with you. When you feel pain, that person hurts with you. When you are struggling and weak and maybe hated by others and outcast and rejected and you feel alone and weak and helpless and defenseless, compassion comes alongside of you and says, I'm with you. It's an intimate emotion. How many times the gospel says Jesus looked on the, on the struggling and the poor and the sick and he had compassion for them. What did he do? He drew near to them. Compassion is an intimate emotion. So we need an intimate measurement. And the psalmist uses the compassion that a father shows to his children. A good father cares for the needs of his children. A good father feels the joy and the pain and the struggles of their child. If a child has special needs, the father feels all the more compassion for them all the more desire to draw near to them, to be a help to them, to walk it out with them. Nothing gives such a father greater joy than the well-being of their child. I felt a little taste of this this week as we moved our son Matthew out of house to his new job, his new apartment. And, uh, and I admit, we did that on Tuesday, and I admit I was emotional. I was emotional. I didn't even want Janice to see how many times I was crying, you know, like tears were coming down. And I just, I don't know why, I just, but I felt it. And, uh, sorry guys. Uh, but then he called us the next day and he's getting along well and job is going well and he's enjoying his apartment and things are going great. And it brought my heart such joy, brought Janice's heart such joy. Because there's nothing we want more than them to do well. Our kids to do well. Well, that is just a small taste, but it gives us a taste of the heart of our Father. He loves it when you do well. He loves it when you succeed. He loves it when you are happy and joyful. And he feels it when you hurt. He feels it when you fall and fail. He's with you. He doesn't say, oh, He feels it all the more closely. Jesus said it's our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He loves to give us the blessings. God's heart is going to explode with joy as he gives us eternal life. And we realize, I don't deserve this. He's like, yeah, you don't. It's grace. Enjoy. Now, I want you to notice a couple words that are repeated here. God's love and his compassion 
are for those who fear him. That, that kind of like maybe jars us a little bit because we use fear as being afraid. But the word fear in this context, it doesn't mean to be afraid. We, we see this odd uh, contrast and Jesus in Luke 12, he tells his disciples, don't be afraid of those who can only kill your body and nothing else. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who after killing your body can cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Okay, so now we know our posture is to be afraid of God, but then a few verses later he says, fear not, little children. Fear not. He just told us to be afraid. Fear not, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, because you are more valuable to him than many sparrows. Fear not. So the fear this is calling us to isn't terror. It isn't being afraid. It isn't like, I don't want to go near him. I'm afraid he'll yell at me. It is the kind of fear that brings reverence. See, even to the strongest Christian, we should never look at God and think small thoughts about God. He's no big deal. He's my buddy. He's God. And so we should walk in the kind of reverence where we put him first. We want to obey him. We want to, we care more about what God says than what people say. We care more about what God says in his word than what the world is saying or what the trends of the world are saying. Because we fear him. We want to obey him. The fear of the Lord is clean. So these three beautiful attributes, love, forgiveness, and compassion, they bend God's heart towards us, but not just in our best moments, but even more in our worst moments. Because God, who is infinite in power, knows our frame is but dust. You know you're made out of dust? I don't mean to insult you, but do you know that you were built with dust? You were. God took the dust and he formed Adam. And we've been dusty ever since. Our frame is, uh, you know, we're not titanium. We're dust. Verse 15 goes on to say this. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. There's that word again and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. We are so temporary, folks. Our lives are so temporary. For those of you who are younger, please, please believe this. Because you feel, you know, you feel, I remember when I was a kid and we got out of school for summer. Some of you guys are in that age, right? And I got out of school for summer and summer felt like an eternity, like wow. This is, I've got forever ahead of me. But somehow it would always end. We're coming to the end of this summer. Well, we're not there, but we're getting there. That's how young people, that you could think of your life as, oh, it's just going to go on forever and ever. You're going to turn around, you're going to blink, and you're going to be older. We are so temporary. And the wind passes over this little flower of our life, and we're gone. And soon no one even remembers we ever existed. And that could be really depressing. 
except that God knows our frame. He knows our weakness. He knows the brevity of life. And he offers us something that is forever. His love. His steadfast love. Which is from everlasting to everlasting. To those who fear him. And he offers his righteousness to our children's children. I claim that as a promise, a good covenant. That my children, my grandchildren, their grandchildren will know his love and his righteousness in their lives. You can claim that and pray that too. Our brief little flower lives can have eternal meaning when we anchor them in his love, in his forgiveness, in his righteousness, in his compassion. We can have forever meaning to our lives when we're in him who lives forever. When our lives are not pointed at worshiping ourselves. You ever think about why is it that people who live for like become super famous and, and become really proud of that and then they just live for fame and for money and for accolades and all that. And it's like they're living for the applause of people and the money that people give and the fame and their names are in lights. That as time goes on, the meaning of their life becomes, I think, harder to find. Because we weren't created to be worshipped. We weren't created to be applauded. It actually doesn't fit us. And after time, when we're looking back on all our accomplishments, and we're old and gray, and we're trying to remember, and we talk to people about somebody, you know, we, we're like, yeah, my name is so-and-so, and they're like, who? And we find that our fame is fading like a flower, our meaning. We were created to worship the one whose meaning and fame will go forever. And when we do, we may not make a big splash in the world, but Christ in us adds eternal meaning to our lives and blessing as we anchor to the one who is eternal. And we do that through putting all our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and receiving eternal life as a gift. As we close, the final revelation about God in this psalm is all about his rule and his kingdom. And you know what? Uh, we didn't prepare, but I'd love for us to sing that song, The Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, again. So if a band guys could come back up. The final revelation about God in this psalm is about his rule and his kingdom. Verse 19 the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. I'm gonna pause there for a moment because he is calling on 
all those under God's rule and his dominion and God is the ruler of all and the king of all. You know, all the problems we have in this world are rulership problems. It came when we sinned against God, we transferred the rule of this world from God to ourselves. We tried to become gods. That's what Satan said. You'll, you'll be like God. We became our own gods, but by default, Satan became the Lord of this world. And all our problems are a rulership problem. Who's ruling this earth? God rules the heavens. He sits on his throne forever. The powerful beings worship him. Bless the Lord for his kingdom. Bless his name, powerful angels. Bless his name, ministers of his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, all his dominion. Bless the Lord. Give him the praise, not yourselves, not me. Give God the praise. And then the psalmist ends where he begins. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to his soul again. Bless the Lord. Bless Yahweh, the great I am. Bless the Lord. And that's good advice for us this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul.